Welcome to the 389th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Brett Riley, author of the new novel, Lord of Order. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brett Riley, author of the new novel, Lord of Order. Brett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. If someone hasn't heard about your novel yet, how would you describe Lord of Order? I would describe it as a post-apocalyptic dystopian Western. It's a book about a, a far future in which, in the far distant past, more like our present time, a fundamentalist Christian group took over the nation and destroyed all technology. And in this future world, the, the history of the past beyond that point is pretty much lost. And uh, so people are living much as they might have before most of uh, the technology that, that we enjoy today. And uh, it's our book focuses on the characters who are running the New Orleans Principality from for the Crusade. And what happens is they suddenly realize at the beginning of the book that everything that they've learned about their history, about their church, may not be true. And the people they've been told are their enemies may not be. And the action takes off from there. And so do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Lord of Order? Yeah, there were uh, a couple of things. One is that my family and I lived in South Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. We lived in Baton Rouge, and so we missed the worst of what Katrina did to the Gulf Coast. But we were still very much aware of it. We had friends who lived in New Orleans and whose fate we weren't sure about for the better part of a week. And as we sat there and watched what happened to the city and to the people of the city, we were just shocked that this sort of thing could happen uh, in the 21st century in America. And so Katrina came one of the touchstone events of my life. 
And along with that, I was really getting into social media roughly around that time. And I come from the South. I have a a lot of friends and relatives who adhere to a fundamentalist Christian ideology. And I saw a lot of posts from them on social media saying things like, tell our political leaders that this is still a Christian nation. Uh, And that always bothered me because America is not a Christian nation. It's a nation with a lot of Christians in it, for sure. But we don't have an official state religion for very good reasons. Pretty much the entire history of Western Europe, for instance, tells us that when you have a state religion, even if you are an adherent of that religion, if you don't tow the exact line that the current leaders want you to tow, you may find yourself on the outside, oppressed, uh, even tortured or killed. And so those two things coalesced for me, and I began to wonder what would happen if people who seem to want to basically get rid of the separation of church and state, what if if they came to absolute power and decided to use the geography of New Orleans uh, against their enemies? And that's what happens in the book. New Orleans, as you might know, sits below sea level in kind of a bowl. And uh, so I thought, what if what happened during Katrina was purposeful? What would, and what would happen if people who were longtime adherents, faithful to this world church, what if they suddenly realized that maybe everything they thought they knew wasn't true, especially when their own lives and everything they work for are immediately threatened? And so Lord of Order is an answer to those questions. So what are your earliest memories of books and reading? Funny, because I started, quote unquote, reading even before I could remember. Apparently, my father, not long after I was born, he was in the Air Force, and this was 1970. And so he was sent to Thailand as part of the Vietnam War effort. And he was gone for a year or so, and apparently, even as an infant, when my mother would read to me, I would just stop everything and listen, almost as if I were in a trance, to the point where my father says that when he came back, I didn't even know how to play. Just getting down on the floor and playing with toys, going outside and frolicking in the grass, whatever. Apparently, I wasn't interested in that and didn't know how to do it. And he says he had to to teach me to play rather than just wanting to be read to basically from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep. His joke is that I was a weird little guy when he came back, that he came back and said, hello, son, I'm dad. And I, he says that I said, hello, father, I uh, hear you've been in Southeast Asia, which of course is <laughs> hyperbole. But apparently books just fascinated me from the beginning. And back as far as my earliest memories, I was reading whatever I could get my hands on. I remember even taking a shot at at Moby Dick when I was like eight years old. And that didn't work out very well. (laughs) But yeah, they've just, you know, they've just always been there. I I don't remember the moment when I first picked up a book and some light bulb went on because apparently it happened before I even really understood what language was. So what was your writing journey that led you from enjoying those stories and enjoying those books to writing your own stories and then writing your first novel. I, from, again, from that very young age, I was probably seven, eight years old when uh, I was in my grandparents' house and discovered an old typewriter 
that still worked. And I asked what it was and they told me and they showed me how to use it. Uh, and it occurred to me that there was this machine made solely for the purpose of producing writing. And there was something about that that, that clicked with me. And they, they found me some old typing paper and I started uh, typing out these little one page short stories that, of course, were mostly just plot summary. People did this and then they did that and then they all die. But, but it got me to thinking from a very young age about the power of stories and how stories worked uh, and how they didn't work. And so I was really fascinated with that. And I used that typewriter until basically we, we couldn't find ribbons anymore. And from there, I, I tinkered with creative writing throughout my teenage and high school years. I, I took creative writing classes and got some of my little pieces published in our high school literary magazine. And there was there were a lot of things going on in my life that kept me from concentrating on it too much. But it was always there. It was always something that I loved and something that uh, I wanted to do at least just for fun. I, I didn't know if I could ever do it professionally, but I found it really fun uh, and rewarding. And uh, so in my mid-20s, I, I wrote my first novel, which was awful. And I never tried to send it out anywhere, but it, it did show me that I could at least sustain a story over book length. And, and so that was good. But by then I was in graduate school and uh, didn't really get to concentrate much on creative writing until I was in my mid 30s. I, I wrote some, some short stories during that time, uh, a few of which later got published. But I didn't attempt a book again uh, until I was in my mid-30s. Again, I wrote another one, realized that it probably wasn't good enough to, to pass muster, and got rid of that. Uh, and then I started tinkering with early versions of manuscripts that would become eventually my first novel, which was Comanche, that became my first short story collection, which came out in 2013, called The Subtle Dance of Impulse and Light, and probably... Gosh, about 10 years ago, I guess, I started putting the first words down in what would eventually become Lord of Order. It took a long time because my day job was, was very demanding, and I would draft it and then put it away for a long time and work on other things. I published a good many short stories and essays during that time, but I wasn't really ready to send Lord of Order off until a couple of years ago, and it worked out. And so what is your day job? I am a professor of English at the College of Southern Nevada here in Las Vegas. I work at the Henderson campus, and I teach composition, which we all do at CSN, all of the English department. I teach American literature courses, various kinds, and I teach creative writing, both our introductory course and fiction writing. Well, when you were talking about your first novel and then also the second novel that you wrote, you said your first novel was bad and then you said your second novel wasn't um, publishable. Have you, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What, why do you think that was in, in your opinion? The, the first one I wrote, which was the one in my mid twenties, I realized a couple of things after I finished it and put it away for a few months and then picked it up again. I realized that it was probably 
overly sentimental and I'm not really an overly sentimental guy. <laughs> and I, I thought it, in a lot of ways it, it might actually have, have delved into the realm of emotional manipulation. It was just handled in a really clunky way. And I also, maybe this is part of that anxiety of influence. I, I realized that some parts of it were overly influenced by people I was reading uh, a lot at the time and that it was so embedded in, in what I, I had done there that I, I wasn't sure at that point in my writing development how to extricate what I wanted to do from the two influenced by other writers parts of the story. And so I just, there were things about that I just said, well, this is an attempt and I finished the attempt, but I think ultimately it's a failed attempt and I'm not sure that this is salvageable. And so in my, in the hubris of youth, I sick of being upsold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member for $90 more. I can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more. You'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness. You'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Basically got rid of all the files <laughs> so I wouldn't be tempted. <laughs> uh, so now if anybody said, well, gosh, I'd, I'd like to see that, I, I still wouldn't be able to help them. And the other one, the the one that I, I wrote in my mid-30s and, and decided that it probably wasn't going to be publishable either, I found it was just a little too episodic for me and uh, there were there were issues with for me there were issues with how the characters develop that were so dependent on certain outlandish plot elements the more i looked at it the more i just said i think this is just a big mess and it was good to to get that story down it was good to to get it out of my head i think cheryl Strait is the one who who calls that story like a second beating heart inside your chest that you have to rip out and, and get on the page. I managed to do that, but I was still learning at the point of my learning, I suppose I should say, in, in how to write a novel that I wasn't sure how to salvage the good parts. And this was written at a point in time when we were still saving a lot of stuff on floppy disks, uh, and I changed computers about 500 times, and I moved a few times, and now I don't even know where those disks are or how I might access them if I could find them. So, you know, that one might be salvageable, especially with the experience I have now, but I, I don't know if I could ever find it again. Sure. You said your first novel was heavily influenced by who you were reading at the time. Who were you reading? The one I remember specifically was Larry McMurtry. Uh, who, of course, just passed away. I was reading a lot of his work at the time, and one of the the elements that kind of bled into my work was that he would have this perfectly realistic setting, realistic characters, realistic problems, but there would sometimes be these really absurd, bizarre situations that occur. And like one I always think of is is from his novel, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers, where our protagonist is driving through these flatlands in Texas and there's a flash flood and he comes to 
this point in the road where there's a big dip and this dip has flooded. And apparently there's a bus down there full of people who had possessions and animals and all kinds of stuff with them. They got stuck in that dip when the flash flood hit. They had managed to make it on top of the bus. But just as our protagonist arrives, one of their, I think it was a goat, uh, jumped off into the water and started swimming around. And our protagonist saw, gosh, this this is distressing the people on top of the bus. Maybe I can help. So he dives into this water that's standing on a, a dip in a Texas road and starts swimming around the bus in pursuit of the goat, which makes one of their dogs on top of the bus realize, hey, there's a stranger nearby and I don't like that. So he jumps off the bus and starts pursuing the guy. <laughs> and so you have a man chasing a goat being chased by a dog <laughs> in the middle of Texas <laughs> And I found that some of those sorts of situations were slipping in on a, a frighteningly regular basis in the book. I, I think I wasn't doing this intentionally, but I think there was part of me that was trying to take various elements of Larry McMurtry and, and put it on the page under my name. And uh, that's one thing I noticed when I read back through it. He, There's him, maybe a couple other writers at the time, whose works were just bleeding through in a way that I had failed to control. Sure. What writing advice would you offer for those who are listening, who are working on their own stories and novels? There are several pieces of advice that I generally give when people ask. One is that, especially if you're a beginning writer, you have to immediately start thickening up your skin and not let no stop you because you're going to hear no a lot, unless you're somebody like Stephen King or Joyce Carol Oates both of whom have probably published three books since I started this sentence, you're probably going to have a lot of no come your way, even if the work you're producing is quality. And you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in your story. And you have to keep going despite all of that. If you're going to let no stop you, you probably shouldn't even start. And so I always tell my students, you're going to hear it. We all do. I still hear no. And so you just have to say, okay, that was a no, on to the next one. I'm going to try to improve this piece, send it out again. I would also tell people uh, that you have to, you should read widely. I think to be a good writer, you need to be a good reader and you need to be an active reader. You need to not just read, not look at the words till the words run out, but make sure that you're paying attention to technique, to structure, how they balance setting and scene how they develop their characters, when they use backstory, and how, without delving too much into exposition, you, you have to read widely and, and pay attention and decide what sort of techniques you think are going to work for you and the style you're trying to make. And I would also, of course, tell people, always respect the writing process. I know especially a, a lot of, of young writers fall under the spell of that Kerouacian idea of the sanctity of the first draft. I'm going to get it down and I'm going to not change this because it's the purest form of my art. But the fact is most first drafts are pretty bad and you've really got to respect revision. You've got to know that revision is not the same as proofreading. That that's definitely a part of the process, but that comes after revision. You've got to look at those global issues of plot structure, of character development, of pacing, making sure that you're balancing elements of scene. You really have to respect that process because generally, I always tell my students this, that writing is easy. Anybody can do it. But writing well is hard. 
it's a lot of work. It's an art. Uh, and you need to respect all the, the pieces of that process as you go if you really want to produce good stuff. That's great. What fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I am currently reading The Deep by Amakatsu, uh, and I'm enjoying that. It's a kind of historical speculative fiction set alternately on the Titanic and on and then later with one of the same characters on there on the Britannic, and there's a supernatural creature involved, which is always cool. And I'm also currently reading a, a nonfiction book that's really interesting, which is Dope Sick by Beth Macy, which is a, a journalistic account of the opioid addiction going on in America. And that's really interesting and informative and maddening. I've also recently read Matthew Celestis's craft book, Craft in the real world, which has made me rethink how I might do my fiction workshops for my students. I'm also rereading Mr. Paradise by Elmore Leonard because I find Elmore Leonard just a, a fascinating writer. He manages to do things that most of us can't get away with. <laughs> like he'll have those long passages of dialogue, a, you know, a conversation that just goes on for pages with nothing else. And yet with him, it somehow works. So I, I like to revisit him. Are you working on a new novel now? I am. I'm working on several things, actually. I have two young adult novels coming out next year, two in a series of what we believe will be four. One is called Freaks, and it's a southern superhero horror young adult novel, and it's supposed to come out in March of next year. We're currently almost ready to print the advanced reader copies for that, and I'm in the first round of edits for its sequel, which is tentatively titled Travelers. That's supposed to come out in August of 2022. I'm also working on a follow-up to Lord of Order, and the third book in the Freak series. I haven't gotten very far in there. I've got about probably 20,000 words apiece for each of those manuscripts, so still a long way to go to even have a first draft, uh, but they are in progress. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? I am on Facebook under, it's at facebook.com slash Brett Riley author. And I am on both Instagram and Twitter. My handle is Brett writes, B-R-E-T-W-R-I-T-E-S, all one word. And you can usually find me there. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Brett Riley, author of the new novel, Lord of Order. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Brett, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Lord of Order by Brett Riley, narrated by David Dorsch, published by Imbrefex Books, and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Gabriel Troy crouched beside the blown-out windows as bullets whizzed by and pockmarked the wall. A double-barreled shotgun lay in the dirt and broken glass at his feet. His right hand clutched the three fifty-seven, its barrel pointed up. He stuck his left index and middle fingers through the hole in his shirt and yanked, ripping most of the sleeve away. With the makeshift rag, he applied pressure where the bullet had gouged a shallow two-inch-long trench across his right shoulder. The wound bled and pulsed, but the arm seemed sound. Regardless, he could not stay put for long. When the heretics had spotted him and opened fire, Troy had ducked into the Dana Student Center, 
a building where, if the histories told true, scholars had gathered for meals. Its windows had been shattered long ago, its walls vandalized with paint and edged weapons of who knew what kind or origin. Some of the graffiti looked old enough to have been written before the purge. The floors were covered in dirt, broken plaster, shards of glass, animal droppings, and piles of rotting leaves. Still, the facade seemed sturdy. A few troubler guns ain't gonna bring it down. If we live through this, I'll assign a renovation crew here. About time somebody did. The shells of old vehicles had, over the long years, been hauled away to the western dumping ground, most of the burned and ruined buildings repaired or razed. But some, like this one, had never been touched. Always too much to do, never enough time. A rifle blast disintegrated part of the wall over Troy's head. No time for ruminations. He grabbed his shotgun, stood, and ran. Hurtling rubble and firing through the glassless windows. At the end of the hallway, he ducked again, leaning the shotgun against the wall and pulling the pack off his back. He dug through it and found some bullets and reloaded his magnum, listening in vain for cries from outside. Reckon I missed them all. Well, I was running and shooting blind. Scattered small arms fire suggested the troublers had hunkered down in the peace quad, but at any moment they might stop pressing their luck and rabbit. If they crossed Broadway in Willa McClure's direction, or headed back across Calhoun where old Ernie Tetweiler waited, things might get sticky. The girl and the elder were mainly supposed to be noisemakers, kicking up enough ruckus to herd the troublers toward Jack Hobbs or Gordy Boudreau. If that failed, the troublers might duck into one of the unlocked buildings and turn this firefight into a siege. I gotta drive them toward St. Charles, and I gotta do it now. But even that presented risks. If the troublers crossed St. Charles, they would disappear amid the crops and trees in Audubon Park. As directed, the field workers and foresters had slipped away as the time for the raid drew near so no citizens would be harmed. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.